know, back in my topical teaching days, I would have been freaking out all week trying to figure out what to say because uh, not knowing, you know, where we're at right now with the election. Let's get lights if we got that. John, thank you. Not knowing where we're at with the election, you know, I would have been saying, okay, I've got, I've got to be able to speak to this because this is the relevant thing. This is what's happening. So we've got to talk about this. What, where's the, what are the scriptures, Lord? What do, I, what do I say? And it's so nice. We're in Leviticus chapter 6 tonight. <laughs> Regardless of results and elections, I will say this about the election, one aside. While you're turning to Leviticus 6, and it's that, that people will say sometimes that Jesus was apolitical. Not so. Not so. Yes, he said, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. But he also said to Pilate, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. You have your authority because of me. I'm the one who determines this. And so while Jesus didn't play politics, he came as the king. In fact, he also said to Pilate, you have rightly said, I'm a king. For this reason, I have come into the world. And so tonight, King Jesus, we acknowledge you as the great, as the ultimate authority over our lives, over this nation, over the world. We recognize, Lord Jesus, it's a world in rebellion. It's a nation that in many ways has spurned your truth and turned its back on righteousness and holiness. We recognize that, but we also recognize with great peace that there would be no power here except it had been given from above. We recognize that in state races and in the presidential race and, and all the rest. And so we acknowledge you, Lord, and we, we say to you now, we accept the outcome that you desire. And we pray that in the midst of it all, that we might, even tonight as we talk about the things before us, we might recognize the part that we have been called to play. In Jesus' name, amen. The part that we have been called to play is not as politicians, but as priests. We are called to be priests. Now, by, by now, we have a pretty good idea, or should have a pretty good idea, of the five offerings of Israel that I tell you again, not a lot of people even are aware of or think about or know, but you know five offerings, the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering. Those five. And tonight we're going to pick up exactly where we left off, uh, verse 8 of chapter 6. I do want to make an aside here that in the Tanakh, that is the, the Hebrew Bible, that verse 8 of chapter 6 is actually verse 1 of chapter 6. So the Jewish translators begin with verse 8. That's the beginning of chapter 6. And actually, that makes better sense than our English translation. I'm not sure why it's the other way in our English Bibles, but it makes more sense because now we have a shift of direction. All the way up through verse 7 of chapter 6, we've been talking about the offerings. The Lord has been instructing Moses to instruct the people about these five offerings. And last week and even on Sunday, we went through the five and saw how they were cameos of the Christ. Well, now, picking up in verse 8, we see it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his sons. So now the direction has changed. This isn't the generic, here are the offerings for the people of Israel. This is for Aaron and his sons. He is now talking to the priests. 
about to be ordained, picking up in chapter 8. We'll see that in short order. Aaron being ordained as the high priest, his son ordained for this priesthood over Israel. And as we study, you got to keep this in mind because both the interpretation and the applications that we'll make tonight are affected by understanding the instructions here are to the priesthood. And you are a royal priesthood. Second Peter, or first Peter, excuse me, first Peter, chapter two, verse nine, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. All those descriptions were originally given to Israel, now given to the church. Peter, by the Holy Spirit, is now making that application. This is the church, a royal priesthood. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Priests who make proclamation. Revelation chapter 1, verse 6, he has made us a kingdom. Priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Priests in training, soon to be reigning. Amen? Priests in training, soon to be reigning. And so he says, command Aaron and his son, saying, this is the law for the burnt offering. The burnt offering itself shall remain on the hearth, on the altar, all night until the morning, and the fire on the altar is to be kept burning on it. The priest is to put on his linen robe, and he shall put on undergarments next to his flesh, and he shall take up the ashes, which the fire reduces the burnt offering on the altar and place them beside the altar. And then he shall take off his garments and put on other garments and carry the ashes outside of the camp to a clean place. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. But the priest shall burn wood on it every morning. He shall lay out the burnt offering on it and offer up smoke in smoke the fat portions of the peace offerings on it. Fire shall be kept burning continually on the altar. It is not to go out. As we'll see, the priestly portions, and now the reason why this is priestly, we're going to go through the offerings again in these two chapters. But now the application is to the priest. How is the priest going to use it? What's the priest supposed to do? What's, what's his part in the handling of the offerings? And with this first one, with the mention again of the burnt offering, we see that the priestly portions, what the priests are able to get out of it themselves, with the burnt offering, it's nothing but fire and ash. They deal with the fire, they tend the fire, they carry out the ashes. That's it. The other offerings will provide bread and meat for them. We'll see that as we get to it. But their portion of the burnt offering is simply to keep the fire going and to remove the ashes as needed. And again, verse 13, note this, fire shall be kept burning continually on the altar. It is not to go out. A perpetual fire, a fire that doesn't cease, does not go out. This is interesting to me. What about when they traveled? You know, did they lift up this burning altar and, and carry it? Uh, you know, hope I don't get stung here, burned here. Did, did it keep burning as they carried it all along? And I actually asked that question this morning. I asked our staff, I said, hey, did anyone know any different about this? Well, I, I found the answer to it. So I'll just enlighten you for a moment. This is Numbers chapter 4, verse 13. And it says, then they shall take away the ashes from the altar, and that is the bronze altar of sacrifice, and spread a purple cloth over it. 
They shall also put on it all its utensils by which they serve in connection with it, the fire pans and the forks and shovels and basins and all the utensils of the altar. And they shall spread a cover of porpoise skin over it and insert its poles. And then they were to carry it as with all of the other holy items or holy furnishings of the tabernacle. So yeah, the, the fire was put out when they traveled. But then when they set up camp again, they were to light the fire and keep it going continually, keep it burning. So that raises the question, why is this such an issue? Why does the Lord tell the priests as part of your role, as your duty with this, with this burnt offering, you gotta keep that fire lit, man. Keep it going. Why the continual fire? Well, the implications are many. And it's actually quite fascinating, so I'm gonna save it for Sunday. I'm sorry, but we'll get back to it, and I have to. There's just too much here. We would have been here until 10.30 or 11, and for some of you, that's fine. Others would be like, what? So Sunday, come back, and we're going to talk about the fire and why the continual fire, why it had to remain lit. For now, I'll tell you this much, that the priests had to keep it lit continually. It was their job for the burnt offering, for the morning offerings, and then for the evening offerings, and for any and all offerings that would happen throughout the day in between morning and evening, that fire had to remain lit. Brothers and sisters, this was no idle work. The priests weren't wandering around the inside of the tabernacle wondering what to do with themselves. They had jobs. They were busy. They were hands to the work. And because they were busy and because they worked hard, they would need sustenance. Verse 14. Now, this is the law of the grain offering. You may recall the mincha. The grain offering for the sons of Aaron, they shall present it before the Lord in front of the altar. And then one of them shall lift up from it a handful of the fine of the sifted flour of the grain offering with its oil and all its incense and all that's on the grain offering. He shall offer it up in smoke on the altar, a soothing aroma as its memorial offering to the Lord. What is left of it, Aaron and his sons are to eat. It shall be eaten as unleavened cakes in a holy place. They are to eat it in the court of the tent of meeting. It shall not be baked with leaven, I have given it as their share from my offerings by fire. It is most holy, like the sin offering and the guilt offering. Every male among the sons of Aaron may eat it. It is a permanent ordinance throughout your generations from the offerings by fire to the Lord. Whoever touches them will become consecrated. You even touch the grain offering. You're holy. You're set apart. This is important to the Lord. And I read this and I hear Jesus saying, Matthew 6, 11, give us this day our daily bread. For the grain offering provided for the priests their daily bread. Brought in as unleavened cakes or unleavened flour, sifted flour or unleavened uh, bread baked on the griddle, these different ways we looked at last week. Truly, priests in training, for that is what we are, this is the best bread we can eat. That is the bread of life. You want your daily bread, the best daily bread is Jesus. To consume Jesus, to think about Jesus, to talk to Jesus, to come to Jesus, to take your troubles to Jesus, to take your joys to Jesus, to 
as it were, dine on the daily bread, which is Jesus Christ. He is the bread come down from heaven. He is, John 6, the bread of life. Again, we talked about last week, the bread of life. But there's a dual-edged principle here that's going on with the priests. And it has application to you and to me. That they took this as literal, actual staple food. This was daily bread. The principle is both financial and it's spiritual. Or it's, it's provisional and it's spiritual. Because specifically, this was provision for those who were in full-time ministry. Now, I know that limits the relevance to a very tight target audience tonight. You know, talking about full-time ministry and, and those who are in full-time ministry. But, but listen up anyway, because it'll come back around to all of us. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. There's a relevance to this idea of the priests receiving from the congregation their daily bread. And Paul tells Timothy, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. He said, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing and the laborer is worthy of his wages, which means two things, that a pastor is worthy of his wages and you can call him an ox. <laughs> no, forget the second one. But there, right there is a, a pattern that was set up not by Paul, not with Timothy, but all the way back to the priests of Israel that the priests were to be provided for. That they were to receive their income so that they could do the work that God called them to do. This is a biblical principle. God put a premium value on supporting those who serve up the bread of his word, who, who focus on the bread of life, who spend their time teaching this. And I understand that may sound a bit self-serving for me to say that, but, but it's just true. It's legit. I'm not trying to defend my role as a full-time pastor, but the priests, think about the priests. They were not to go out and tend the flock or work the wine press or, or harvest the grain. They weren't to do those things. They were to be solely devoted to the Lord's tabernacle and to the Lord's people. That was their job. That was their business. That was their focus. And for that focus, they received their daily bread. They were provided for. They will also, as we'll see, be provided with meat. Both bread and meat. Daily sustenance as they continued in their work, not out tending the flock, but tending instead the flock of God and focused on the things of God. And so Paul says in Galatians 6, verse 6, the one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches. So I'm going to be by all your homes tonight to pick up what's mine. <laughs> Acts chapter 6, verse 4, Peter got this. And understand, Peter was a fisherman. Peter knew how to make a living, a man's man out on the Sea of Galilee. He knew how to bring in the catch. Most of the time, sometimes he wasn't so successful. But Peter had a job. He had training. He could live off of that. And yet it was Peter who said very clearly, Acts chapter 6, verse 4, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. That's our focus. That's what we are called to do. Peter's life was changed dramatically. Remember what Jesus told him. No longer are you going to you know, fish for fish. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. And Peter left completely the fishing industry and went into the gospel. That became his focus. And so, yeah, I, I think it's absolutely legitimate for, for pastors to be supported, to do what the Lord has called them to do. But listen, I said this was dual-edged. 
The Lord made sure of the provision of the priest, but here's the other side of it. This also means that the priest was required to eat this bread daily. Yeah, well, that makes sense. Now, listen to me. This was a requirement. It wasn't just their provision. They had to eat this bread. There was a way to eat this bread. The Lord expected them to be eating this bread. And tragically, from priests to pastors, the bread of the word too often is left on the wayside. Too many, they're not feeding on the bread. They don't have time. There are too many other incidentals that have to be taken care of in the church. Too many other things going on. And we saw this happen in Israel. In fact, keep your finger there in Leviticus 6 and turn over to 2 Kings 22. 2 Kings chapter 22 in your Bibles, where we find Israel in a very interesting place. You can probably guess by 2 Kings 22, so we're coming to the end of the books of Kings, and in 2 Kings 22, if we're coming to the end, that means if you know anything about your Jewish history, you know toward the end of Kings, things are gonna go really bad, and they're gonna end up in Babylon. And Israel, Judah, is gonna fall. And the kings are not in good shape. And in fact, we come to what I believe was the last good king, a boy by the name of Josiah. 2 Kings 22, verse 1, Josiah was eight years old when he became king and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem and his mother's name was Jadida, the daughter of Adaiah of Bozkat. Everybody got that down. Verse 2, he did right in the sight of the Lord. He walked in the way of his father David, nor did he turn aside to the right or to the left. And that's the gold standard for the kings is if he walked like David walked means they have a heart after God like David did. And so Josiah comes along, eight years old, and God had his heart. And in verse three, now watch what happens. In the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent Shaphan, the son of Atzaliah, the son of Meshulam, the scribe, to the house of the Lord, that is to the temple, saying, Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may count the money brought into the house of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have gathered from the people. Let them deliver it into the hand of the workmen who have oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the workmen who are in the house of the Lord to repair the damages of the house. At this point, King Josiah, 18 years into his reign, recognizes the temple's in disrepair. It's a complete shambles. It needs work done. Man, collect the offerings of the people and let's get busy. Put them to work, Josiah says. I want this thing fixed. Let them deliver it to, to them to repair the damages. Verse six, to the carpenters and builders and masons for buying timber and hewn stone to repair the house. Only no accounting shall be made with them for the money delivered into their hands for they deal faithfully. I trust them. Just get them to work, Josiah says. Watch this. Then Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan the scribe, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave it, gave the book to Shaphan who read it. My friends, think about it. That would be like coming to church on a Sunday morning and Les going, hey Rick, yeah Les, I found a Bible. Weird, let me see that. Shaking the dust off of it. Wow, I didn't think we had any of these anymore. And a lot of churches are heading that direction where there's not a Bible in sight. 
I have a problem with that. That concerns me greatly. But that's exactly where Israel was. There wasn't a Bible to be found until they began to do repairs on the temple. And, oh, hey, look at what we got here. And they bring the Bible. Watch this. He gave it to Shaphan who read it. Shaphan the scribe came to the king and brought back word to the king and said, your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it in the hand of the workmen who have oversight of the house of the Lord. Moreover, Shaphan the scribe told the king saying, Hilkiah the priest gave me a book. And Shaphan read it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And then the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, Achbor, the son of Micaiah, Shaphan, the scribe, and Asaiah, the king's servant, saying, go inquire of the Lord for me and the people in all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that burns against us because our fathers, note this, our fathers, don't miss this, our fathers have not listened to the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. And America is in the place that it is today because our fathers are not paying attention to the words written in this book. This is the deal. This is the issue. If I could say one thing, and I do not say this arrogantly, because I've told you before, half of my ministry life, I was a topical preaching pastor who thought it was cool not to have to have a Bible. That I could just kind of wing it. Whatever came to mind, whatever topic of the day. But if I could say anything to my fellow pastors, it's that we must be daily first consumers of the bread of the word. We above all people or among all people ought to be in the word and feeding on the word every single day. Give us this day our daily bread. And I think if pastors the worldwide would feed on their daily provision of the word of God, then the word of God would be taught and people would hear it and there would be a radical change in the way our country and our world does things. Give us this day our daily bread. Now listen, you are priests in training. So the reality is this is not just for pastors. And it's not just to put off on those who are in charge. Well, they're the ones who are supposed to teach us. No, you be a consumer. You eat the daily bread. You don't just pray, give us this day our daily bread. Eat it. Yes, it begins with the priest. But it goes for anyone, compensated or common, ordained or ordinary, professional or practicing. It makes no difference. If you desire to be trained up, a priest unto the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is all of our calling, it must be according to this word. It must be by the word of God. Isaiah 8, verse 20, I love this verse. Isaiah the prophet said, to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. I awoke at dawn this morning and grabbed my iPhone to discover the unresolved election and to be reminded of a nation very clearly divided. I mean, this thing has been razor close. But you know what? As I sat there reading the news, tiny little tear, no. <laughs> As I began just kind of looking over things, 
and I, I did, I was saddened greatly and not because of the presidential race. I was actually more saddened about, what is it, referendum 90 or whatever it's called in, in Washington State getting passed. That broke my heart. That now kindergartners are gonna be given sex education in Washington State because they need to know these things. I, I, it, it makes me sick. Anyway, sorry, personal. But I, I sat there reading it and looking over the local uh, you know, outcome and, and looking at the divide of the nation. And, and I realized what hit me was the real divide, and it's the one you're not gonna hear mentioned in all of the post-election punditry, the real divide is moral. It's moral. There are moral issues at stake, moral issues at play, biblical issues, Morality that people don't even know because they're not in the word. Because they don't hear the heart of the Lord because the priests are not eating the daily bread and they're certainly not passing it out to the parishioners. This is a nation starved for the word of truth. And the question really for all of us here tonight is who's gonna bring it? Who's gonna bring the bread? We all have a part to play here. But please know, before you bring it, you've got to know it. And the only way to know it is to be fed by it. To feed on the, the bread of the word. And the bread of life, which is Jesus, who is the word incarnate, Jesus himself. Now, note what's interesting is that along with this, so going now back to the priests who are being trained up and raised up and taught, here's how you handle the offerings. So the burnt offering, the ashes and the fire, they tend to now the grain offering, they received their portion, their daily bread from this grain offering. But note that the priest was also himself required to bring it. He was required to bring a grain offering. If you pick up in verse 19, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, this is the offering which Aaron and his sons are to present to the Lord on the day when he is anointed. The 10th of an ephah, of fine flour as a regular grain offering, half of it in the morning and half of it in the evening. It shall be prepared with oil on a griddle. And when it's well stirred, you shall bring it. You shall present the grain offering in baked pieces as a soothing aroma to the Lord. The anointed priest who will be in his place among the sons shall offer it by a permanent ordinance. It shall be entirely offered up in smoke to the Lord. So every grain offering of the priest shall be burned entirely. It shall not be eaten. This is a unique grain offering. This is the priestly grain offering specifically for when he got ordained, specifically for anointing day when he became named and ordained a priest. He was required to bring his part his grain offering. And we'll see this on the day of anointing, which is beginning in chapter eight and runs through chapter 10, a fascinating first ordination that we'll see soon. Have you been anointed by the Spirit of God? If you have, then you know. And if you haven't, then you probably know that as well. First John 2.20, a verse we read often, is you have an anointing from the Holy One and you all know. To give your life to Jesus, there is anointing that comes with that, the anointing of his spirit, an anointing, a calling. Sometimes we don't fully understand or know what our calling is right at first, but there's an anointing from God that is on his priests in training, which is you and me. 
You have an anointing, brothers and sisters. And if you have an anointing, then you are required as a priest in training to bring your part. Bring your part. Like the priest had to on his anointing day, he had to bring his grain offering. He had to bring his part. Anointed ones, do you bring your part? Well, I don't know what my part is. Have you brought your offering? I'm not sure what my offering is. Listen, Jesus, Jesus did. Jesus brought his part. And he never asks us to do what he himself hasn't already done. Jesus said, baptize them. Well, Jesus was baptized before he said it. Jesus says, take up your cross. And then he went and took up his cross first. Jesus says, love one another. And then, of course, he said, greater love has no one than this. Then he laid down his life for his friends, which is what he did. So he's never asked us to do anything that he himself wouldn't do. We follow after the model, the pattern of Jesus who brought his part, who gave of himself. And that's what a priest does. The priest brings his part, offers up what he has, what she has, in our case, to give. Bring your part. Jesus always brought his offering. And by the way, still does. He still does as the great high priest. He's still bringing his part. And there's a day coming, and this still, every time I read this, it stuns me. Luke 12, 37, he said, blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. So priests in training, you're slaves. Get used to it. Good kind of slavery. I mean, you got a choice. You can be a slave of righteousness, a slave of God, or you can be a slave of sin and a slave to destruction. But he says, blessed are those slaves who the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them, the slaves, have them recline at the table and he will come up and wait on them. Jesus bringing his part. He's gonna serve bread and wine. He's gonna serve up a meal to you on that day. Amazing because he said, I, I don't, I'm not gonna drink of this wine until I drink it anew with you in the kingdom. But when he said that, no one would realize that he was going to be the one pouring out. He was going to be the one in service to those who were simple servants of his. And Jesus said in Luke twenty two twenty seven, who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Now, in our culture, as, as in Middle Eastern culture, we'd say, of course, the one who reclines is the greater one. One who serves is the hired hand, right? The one who serves, that's just the bond servant. Jesus says, is it not the one who reclines at the table, but I am among you as one who serves. Jesus brings his part. And he calls on us as his royal priesthood in training to bring our part. Whatever that may be, whatever it is that God has given you to bring, you bring it. Verse 24. And then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and to his son saying, this is the law of the sin offering. That is the chata'ah. In the place where the burnt offering is slain, the sin offering shall be slain before the Lord. It is most holy. Yeah, yeah, Lord, we heard this. No, no, I'm talking to the priest now. I'm instructing the priest as to their part. The priest, verse 26, who offers it for a sin, for sin shall eat it. It shall be eaten in a holy place in the court of the tent of meeting. Anyone who touches its flesh will become consecrated. And when any of its blood splashes on a garment in a holy place, you shall wash what was splashed on. 
Also, the earthenware vessel in which it was boiled shall be broken. And if it was boiled in a bronze vessel, then it shall be scoured and rinsed in water. Every male among the priests may eat of it, that is, of the sin offering. It is most holy. But, verse 30, no sin offering of which any of the blood is brought into the tent of meeting to make atonement in the holy place shall be eaten. It shall be burned with fire. So let me explain that. What, what he, the priests are learning now is that any sin offering that was brought by an individual of the congregation of Israel, part of it was meat for the priest. The priest could eat that meat if someone just brought their own personal sin offering. But if the priest brought a sin offering himself, he was not allowed to eat that meat. If he brought his own for sin, that whole thing had to be burned up. If, if a sin offering was made for the whole congregation, then that whole thing had to be burned up and that could not be eaten by a priest either. So two exceptions with the sin offering is the priest himself offering and Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, the sin offering was for the atonement of the sins of the congregation of Israel and the priest could not eat that, could not have any of that meat. Yom Kippur, we're going to talk about that in Leviticus 16. The whole chapter is dedicated to that day of atonement, that special day. But I want to, I want to go back and, and touch on something. We've used this word a lot. In fact, Les read this and used this word tonight, propitiation. I want to make a distinction for you, and I think it's really important for us uh, biblically to understand this going forward, that Jesus is, as we've seen, the complete and total fulfillment of the sin offering. Amen? Amen. He did it. He's, he's the whole thing, right? But not just for atonement. And we've made the point, not for atonement, which is just covering, but for propitiation, which is the total satisfaction of the wrath of God. But there's something interesting here, and I'd like to point this out. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. We've read this many times, but John says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now I hesitate here because when you start to use words like propitiation, people start to nod. Propitiation or expiation or any of the Asians, we start to go, I don't even know what that's, what is that? I don't. Listen, the translation here, when it says that he himself is the propitiation for our sins, you need to first note that that word translated propitiation is the noun form. It's not a verb. It's the noun. He is the propitiation. The propitiation is Jesus. Not just what he does, it's who he is. But the problem with this word, and the word in the Greek, and you might note this, is hilasmos. If you're transliterating, H-I-L-A-S-M-O-S, hilasmos. And the Greek word hilasmos, uh, translators argue about it. They're uncertain about it. Now, the New American Standard Translation Bible that I teach out of goes with propitiation. That's probably a good choice. Other Bibles will say expiation. And you know what? That's a good choice. But which is it? And, and what's the difference? And what does it mean? And does it really matter? It does matter. Listen, expiation, the word expiation in English means to put an end to. And halasmos 
in the Greek does have that meaning. To put an end to something, it's over, sin is gone. Once God, once Jesus made expiation for us at Calvary, sin is gone. As far as the east is from the west. So expiation, it's a good word for what he did. But there's also propitiation, which speaks more of the appeasement or the satisfaction of the wrath of God. So again, translators are divided. Is it expiation? Note this, here's the big difference. Expiation, which is the means or the instrument of our cleansing, or is it propitiation, which focuses on the end of our cleansing? That is God's holy satisfaction and his favorable disposition to the sacrifice. Expiation is the means. Propitiation is the ends. And here's the answer. Jesus is both. He is the means and he is the end. He is the one who who did it and he is the one about whom or through whom it was done. He's both. He's the instrument and he's the satisfaction of my salvation. He's expiation, he's propitiation in himself. And again, halasmos, the Greek word is a noun, so it's not just what he did, it is who he is. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, or shall not perish. In other words, you believe in Jesus, you are saved for all eternity. You believe in Jesus, done deal, expiation, propitiation, halasmos, any word you want to use for it, it's a done deal in Jesus Christ. He is our sin offering. And so the sin offering was a, a most holy thing. And the priests were to treat it very in a holy way and they could eat of it, again, if it wasn't their personal offering or the Yom Kippur offering for the entire congregation, they could eat the meat of it, but it was a holy dinner that they would eat. And note this in verse 27 and 28, because it, it's curious. Also, anyone who touches its flesh will become consecrated. They'll become holy. When any of its blood splashes on a garment in a holy place, you shall wash what was splashed on. Okay, they're wearing the priestly robes and they go in there to shake the blood around. Blood's gonna get on stuff. Gotta wash it, the Lord says. Also the earthenware vessel in which it was boiled shall be broken and if it was boiled in a bronze vessel, it shall be scoured and rinsed in water. Understand what he's saying. If blood got on anyone's clothing, any priest's clothing, they were holy. If it got on anything aside from the bronze altar or the gold altar of incense or the Ark of the Covenant on Yom Kippur, if it got on anything else but those, it is to be washed off. So it gets on the priestly clothes, it had to be washed. And they would either wash it in an earthenware vessel or in a bronze vessel. They would get a bowl and they'd stick it down in there and that's how they did their washing. And so that's the application of the, of the vessels here is that if you take the garments of a priest with blood on them, first of all, they didn't just shout it out, okay? <laughs> they didn't have that back then. They would take the garment and go into the vessel and they would just do their washing in the vessel. If it's an earthenware vessel and they wash the blood off the clothes of the priest, that earthenware vessel, vessel had to be shattered. It could not be used again. Why? This was holy. 
If it was a bronze vessel and they did the washing, they had to take it out and wash it and scour it to be sure that nothing was left on it to make sure it was completely clean. The bronze bowl had to be scoured. The earthenware vessel, that had to be broken. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. That our bodies, he says, are earthenware vessels, breakable things, fragile things. And yet there's this holy treasure inside. And it makes me wonder, a question we've asked so many times over the years, why does the Lord leave us in our earthenware after we get saved? Why am I still lugging this old pot around, you know? Why not just save me and take me home and I'm done? Why am I still here? Because there's some washing that needs to take place to truly make me holy. There's, there's sanctification that's going on. There's even at times a breaking of this vessel that I will trust the treasure within rather than the vessel without. And God does this in all of us. He, he sanctifies that we might forever know where our holiness comes from. It is not from us. I'm not righteous because I happen to do the right thing or because I happen to think highly of myself. That's not righteousness, that's arrogance. But I am made righteous, I am made holy by the treasure within, by Jesus himself abiding in me, by the Holy Spirit working out holiness in me. And you know what, Andrew Bonner says, sense of sin renders Jesus precious to the soul. Man, when I sense that sin that must be cleansed, that sin in me and on me, when I'm aware of my own sinfulness, Jesus is all the more precious to me. All the more amazing is his grace. And Paul says in these earthenware vessels, hey, we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed. Oh, I've been perplexed the last couple of days, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. That's interesting because note this, even when we need to be broken, we are not destroyed. See, a bruised reed, he will not break. He's tender, he's healing. And Paul said, we're always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body as well. Priests in training, that's what this is about, sanctification, being made holy, being prepared for something greater that's just around the corner. Chapter seven, verse one. Now this is the law of the guilt offering. It is most holy. Now we're on to the guilt offering, the asham. And this is how the priest is to handle this. In the place where they slay the burnt offering, they are to slay the guilt offering. And he shall sprinkle its blood around the altar then he shall offer from it all its fat, the fat tail and the fat that covers the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, which is on the loins and the lobe of the liver. He shall remove with the kidneys. Remember that from Sunday? And the priest shall offer them up and smoke on the altar as an offering by fire to the Lord. It is a guilt offering and a sham. Every male among the priests may eat of it. So here is another offering. They can, they can eat the meat 
the good meat that's left over, it shall be eaten in a holy place. It is most holy. The guilt offering is like the sin offering, and there's one law for them. The priest who makes atonement with it shall have it. So whether it's the sin offering and the guilt offering, the priest gets the meat. So again, there's more daily provision for the, for the priest in his priestly ministry. The grain, the meat of these offerings, it was the priestly portion. It was for their sustenance. It was their provision. But there's something new that, that we notice here. And I think I skipped right over it. No, I didn't. Verse 8. Also the priest who presents any man's burnt offering, that priest shall have for himself the skin of the burnt offering. This is new. We didn't see that before, which he has presented. Likewise, every grain offering that is baked in the oven and everything prepared in a pan or on a griddle shall belong to the priest who presents it. Every grain offering mixed with oil or dry shall belong to all the sons of Aaron, to all alike. So they get the bread, we get that. They get the meat. They also get the skin. Interesting. They get the skin. Why? What, 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 what's that for? Well, leather, right? Suede. They, they got it. They had it for wineskins if they needed or for tent making or, I don't know, vellum, bomber jackets, whatever they needed the leather for. They, they got the leather. And, and this is so wonderful, so beautiful that, that God is giving both provision and covering, clothing, if you will, for the priest, expressing that God's got you covered. You focus here I'll take care of the rest. I'll make sure there's food on the table. I'll make sure there's clothing on your backs. You get the skins. I got you covered. You could call it a throwback to the very first sacrifice ever made. Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, the Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. That is, as they were leaving the Garden of Eden, kicked out because of their sin, because of their rebellion. So now they're leaving the Garden of Eden and we know that there as they left, God made skins for them. You know what that means? It means he had to sacrifice some animals to do it. First sacrifice in the Bible. For two sinners, as they blew it in the garden, God says, I'm not sending you out into the world naked. I will cover you. I'm gonna take care of you. God always covers his people. Let me say that one more time, and please hear this clearly. God always covers his people. He always cares for his priests, and you are a royal priesthood. I've been to this passage many times, one of my favorite in the scriptures because it brings such comfort and, and clarity to me. And years ago, I think I've told you, I had to decide if I believed this or not. Would I accept this as God's word, as, as the words right out of the mouth of Jesus, and would I accept it as true or not? Let me read it to you tonight, and you ask yourself the same question. Jesus says, for this reason I say to you, Matthew 6, 25, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow. Nor do they reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, I love this, can add a single hour to his life? 
Let's do a scientific study and see how worry helps lifespan. And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself, himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. That is a key verse for any priest in training alive today. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. All these things will be taken care of. God's got you covered. God will provide what is needed. Now, I've had the conversation with people after preaching this very thing, after saying this very thing, people going, well, that's fine for you. It's not working out well for me. You know what I say to that? You need to go to, back to Matthew 6, 25 through 33 and read it again. You need to start walking it out. You need to ask the Lord, what's going on? What am I missing here? Because this is a promise of Jesus Christ. You seek the kingdom and his righteousness, I got you covered. Well, I don't believe that. That's your problem. That's the problem right there. You can take him at his word or not. Didn't say it was going to be easy. Didn't say there weren't going to be days where there were, you know, many, many hours between meals. Didn't say there wouldn't be times where you're struggling. And perhaps part of the struggle is part of the sanctification that he's doing, that he's working in your life. What he says is, I've got you covered. I'm not going to let you starve. I'm not going to let you be naked out there in the, in the cold world. I've got you. It's taken me 56 years to start to believe that, my friends. Looking back over so many years of doubt and distress and worry and fear over income and what's going to happen and can I provide for my family and oh no, and, and Jesus whispering quietly over all those years, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added. I'll take care of these things. That's not prosperity gospel. That is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to keep his word. So the priests not only got the bread and the meat, they got the skins. They had the cool leather jackets. Well, continuing on. Where are we here? Chapter 7, verse 11. Now this is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings. So now we're to the last one, the Shalomim, which shall be presented to the Lord. By the way, it's interesting, the order's kind of out of whack here. As the Lord is instructing the priests, see in chapters 1 through 6, verse 7, we saw the order of these things talked about that it was um, burnt offering, right? And then grain offering, and then peace offering was third, and then the sin offering, and then the guilt offering. And that was the order it was given. But now we're out of, now the peace offering is last. And I think that's purposeful because it's walking through all these offerings that brings you to peace. It brings us to the peace offering. Jesus is cameoed in all of these, and of course, Jesus is our peace. But note this, the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings, which shall be presented to the Lord, if he offers it by way of thanksgiving, 
Then along with the sacrifice of thanksgiving, he shall offer unleavened cakes mixed with oil, unleavened wafers spread with oil, and cakes of well-stirred fine flour mixed with oil. With the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving, he shall present his offering with cakes of leavened bread. This should be kind of shocking. Leavened bread? What? Especially for you Bible students of the entire word, you know what leaven stands for, but hey, with the peace offering of thanksgiving, bring cakes of leavened bread. Of this he shall present one of every offering as a contribution to the Lord. It shall belong to the priest who sprinkles the blood of the peace offering. So the priest got to enjoy thick, fluffy, white wonder bread. You know? Or, or, or Texas toast. I mean, you know, thick bread. It wasn't just this, the thin crackers of the unleavened bread or the little styrofoam discs that we're eating at communion. Just disgust me. Could we at least spread some oil on them? I mean, would anyone have a problem with that? <laughs> dip them in oil. They got leavened bread as well as part of the peace offering. And this is so huge. It was, their, it was a contribution that is made. Note that word contribution. Where is it? In verse 14. Each one shall present one of every offering as a contribution. Now, note that. Your Bible may say something different. It may say as a heave offering. Not the way we think of heave. It wasn't like he eats it. No, it, it, a heave means to, to wave it before the Lord. It's a heave offering, a terumah. A terumah. It's a gift raised up as an offering before the Lord. So they would, they would take this. They'd take the leavened loaf raise it up and wave it before the Lord in thanksgiving. And it's really weird because it's leavened. Why is it leavened? Well, it's easier to hold on to than those thin, flaky, you know, unleavened bread. I mean, you get a thick loaf of bread. It's like a football. You can hold that up, no problem. Wave it around. No. Why is it leavened? Leaven throughout the Bible is a picture of sin. And it is here as well as everywhere else. This is what makes it so amazing to me. Remember though, this is a, a peace offering. Okay, so it's a peace offering. That is the person who's offering is at peace with God when they come. They're in a reconciled, peaceful state with God. That's why they're bringing the peace offering. They just wanna say thank you. It's good between me and him. And I'm atoned for him, and I'm, I'm covered, and I've got the guilt. All that's going on. I'm, I'm, I'm in a good place with God. I just want to come and say thank you to him. And I bring the peace offering, and I, I wave this heave offering, this wave offering of leavened bread. Listen, he's at peace with God, but he's still a sinner. He, he's, he's good with the Lord, but he's still in corrupt or corruptible flesh. So what's going on here, and it's just beautiful to me, is that while thankfully sharing peace with God, this wave offering, this is like saying, Psalm 139, 23, search me, O God, know my heart, try me, know my anxious thoughts, see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. I know I'm still a sinner. Forgiven, but still yet a sinner. Fellow priests in training, don't forget that while we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 5.1, we are yet corruptible. 
we are still incorruptible bodies. We are still capable. Anyone disagree with me on this? We are still capable of sin. Want to argue the point? <laughs> but I'm saved, yes, and a sinner. But, but I'm washed clean, yes, and corrupt. But, but I'm born again, yeah, and still in skin. I said this before, born again, still in skin. God knows that. He knows we're still in corruptible bodies. He knows that we still have a sin nature that is at war with the spiritual man, the spiritual woman in us. He gets that. He's not looking for perfect people. God is looking for people that he can perfect. And that's the role that we're in as priests in training. But check this out. Skip ahead to Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus 23. Verse 16. A little heads up when we get to Leviticus 23. It's all about the holidays of Israel. The holy days. And in chapter 23, verse 16, the Lord says, you shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Shabbat, and then you shall present a new grain offering to the Lord. You shall bring in from your dwelling place two loaves of bread for a wave offering made of two-tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. What is this about? Same idea here. Every year as part of the Feast of Shavuot, they gave this special offering. This is part of Shavuot. It, 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 they took two loaves of leavened bread and they waved them both before the Lord. Two loaves. So this wasn't just like the one loaf. Two loaves. Leavened. The sin in the bread. Or at least the picture of sin. The idea of sin. The concept of sin is there. And they waved these two loaves before the Lord. And the question that's been asked for centuries is what do they represent? Why are they waving at Shavuot two loaves of leavened bread before the Lord? Some of the old rabbis, they say, well, it's the two loaves represent the law and the prophets. Well, I got a problem with that because Psalm 19 verse 7 says the law of the Lord is perfect and leaven is a picture of sin. So it's a bad picture if you're trying to say it's the law and the prophets, they should both be unleavened. Picture of sinlessness. I suggest to you that the waving of these two loaves of leavened bread at Shavuot was prophetic, was looking ahead, that the two loaves speak of two called and yet corruptible people groups. What do you mean? Jews and Gentiles. Why is that significant? Because two groups came together on this special day in an offering of peace. The peace offering with the, the leavened loaf. Now, now this special offering, it's like a peace offering, two loaves. Shavuot is Pentecost, my friends. And on the day of Pentecost, the church was born. You know what happened that day. The two groups became one. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul says, He himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, the law of commandments and ordinances, so that he himself might make the two, two loaves, two loaves with leaven, into one new man establishing peace. 
peace offering and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, having put to death the enmity. And Paul writes, Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, all are one in Christ Jesus. Two loaves leavened presented before the Lord on Pentecost. And I think it was a prophetic picture of the church that happened on that beautiful day. But the leavened loaf here back in uh, Leviticus chapter seven was never put on the altar, was never burned up, was never offered up in that way. It was held up. It was waved before the Lord, again, as if to say, Lord, I belong to you. I'm at peace to you, but I know I still got a sin problem. But search me, try me, Lord. It was recognized and then it was eaten by the priests. It was part of their provision. Verse 15, now as for the flesh of the sacrifice of his thanksgiving peace offering, it shall be eaten on the day of his offering. He shall not leave any of it until morning. But if the sacrifice of his offering is a votive, that is a vow offering, or a free will offering, he just wants to bring it, it shall be eaten on the day that he offers his sacrifice, and on the next day what is left of it may be eaten. But what is left over from the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day shall be burned with fire, Verse 18, so if any of the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering should ever be eaten on the third day, he who offers it will not be accepted and it will be reckoned to his benefit. It will not be reckoned to his benefit. It shall be an offensive thing and the person who eats of it will bear his own iniquity. Stay away from eating it on the third day. You can eat it the day of. You can eat the leftovers the next day. On the third day, don't eat it. So the peace offering here, if it was someone who had just fulfilled a vow, in fact, we see this in 1 Samuel. Hannah did that. Hannah fulfilled a vow to the Lord. She returned Samuel and she brought a peace offering. And so it, it, sometimes it was just, man, I fulfilled a vow to the Lord and I just, wanna, I just wanna come and say, thank you, Lord, for seeing me through that. Or if it was someone who just wanted to say thanks, God said, in those situations, you can have an extra day of feasting. You could eat that day, you could eat the rest on the next day. But... Do not eat it on the third day. Why? Well, because the flesh was more likely to become corrupt. Be bad for you. If you leave meat out on the counter, I'm telling you, don't eat that hamburger three days from now. So interesting. Don't eat the flesh on the third day because that's when it becomes corrupt. Psalm 16, verse 10. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay or the word there in Hebrew, shakat, means corruption. Acts 2.29. Peter said, brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb was with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay on the third day. Morning of the third day, Jesus was up and out of the tomb. Morning of the third day, Jesus was not in the tomb. Jesus did not know, did not see corruption. And so we see this even worked into the offering of the sacrifice of peace offering for thanksgiving no corruption. 
Don't eat it on the third day. Verse 19, also, the flesh that touches anything unclean shall not be eaten, it shall be burned with fire. As for other flesh, anyone who is clean may eat such flesh. Talking about the priests again. But the person who eats the flesh of the sacrifice of peace offerings, which belong to the Lord in his uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from his people. You think God was serious about holiness? He goes on. When anyone touches anything unclean, whether human uncleanness or an unclean animal, or any unclean detestable thing, and eats of the flesh of the sacrifice of the peace offerings which belong to the Lord, that person shall be cut off from his people. Why? Because it's an affront to the Lord. Because this is a God thing. This is a, the, the peace offering is a fellowship with God. It's an interaction with God, and God is a holy God. And you approach him that way in holiness. This world doesn't get it, especially this culture. We can't just approach God any old way we please. Yo, what's up? You know that the whole phrase, the man upstairs, or, or the way people sometimes refer to God is so demeaning. You can't just approach him however you want. He's God. He's holy. He's perfect. He's pure and righteous. And Paul said in Romans 9.20, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me this way? Will it? Or does the, not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Isn't that up to, isn't he the creator? Since when did we slide into that place of thinking that we could talk back to our holy creator God? And it just reminds me at this point that all of these offerings, they were all established to enable the people of Israel to approach a holy God, to come near to him with the right attitude and with a holy demeanor. He made this all very serious and very legislated so that the people of Israel coming out of the idolatry of Egypt would recognize this is different. This is pure and righteous and good. And if I'm going to approach God, I'm going to approach him his way. His way. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. These are all cameos of Christ, right? The one way to the Father. There is a right way to come before God. There is a pure and holy way to come before God. With Israel, perform the sacrifices and you will be accepted with you, fellow priests in training, you go through Jesus. You go through Jesus who himself is perfect and pure and holy and he makes us able to come right up to the Lord. Verse 22, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel saying, you shall not eat any fat from an ox or a sheep or a goat. Also the fat of an animal which dies and the fat of an animal torn by beasts may certainly be put to other use, but you must certainly not eat it so much for the roadkill cafe. <laughs> Verse 25, for whoever eats the fat of the animal from which an offering by fire is offered to the Lord, even the person who eats shall be cut off from his people. You are not to eat any blood, either of bird or of animal, in any of your dwellings. Any person who eats any blood, even that person shall be cut off from his people. God is consistent in his prohibitions of eating blood or fat in particular. 
Why? Leviticus 17, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. It is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Don't drink blood. And don't eat the fat. As for the fat, aside from the obvious health issues, and you can look at it that way and go, well, God was just looking out for his people, and he was, but it's not just health issues, it's holy identity. What God's doing here, and this is easy to forget as you look through these and you go through all of these sacrifices, God is setting his people and his priests apart. He's giving them a different way, setting them apart from the bloodthirsty, fat-chewing pagans of Canaan. And all these things, you can look it up, all of these offerings and the way God goes about them are completely different than the pagan offerings, which require the drinking of blood and the chewing of the fat and the partying and, and, and the, just all of the immorality that went with it. That was pagan worship of pagan gods that did not exist. God says, you're gonna do this in a holy and pure and righteous way. And if you don't, cut off. God is setting apart his people from carnality to spirituality. What does it mean for an Israelite to be cut off? That sounds a little harsh. Well, it's not death. It is disfellowship. It's not execution, it's excommunication. It's exclusion from this holy theocracy. God is not messing around. This is a theocracy, and it would be until the people cry out for a king and get all messed up. God says, I will be your king, and you follow me, and let's do it my way. And you live to be holy, and especially the priesthood. Man, if the people are going to be holy, the priesthood must be holy. In the same way, if we're to have an impact, I read a really interesting article today, um, sent to be by Meredith Green, about politics and Christians. And what's a Christian's part in politics? Contrary to popular belief, being a Republican and a Christian is not all 100% hand in hand. You're not, you know, you're not gonna be standing before the Lord and say, well, I, I voted Republican. And he'll say, well, so. <laughs> being a Democrat and, and a Christian is not necessarily mutually exclusive. We can have that conversation politically another time. But what I'm saying to you is this. How do we navigate politics as Christians? I said as we started, Jesus was not apolitical. He didn't play politics, but he knew who was in authority. And he respected authority, and he abdicated even to the will of that authority, pay Caesar what is Caesar's. You know, Peter, take the... Take the drachma out of the fish's mouth. Pay our taxes. <laughs> so Jesus acknowledged that, lived by it, lived in it, and lived perfectly. How do we as Christians live and engage in the political process in America? And I'll tell you, the number one thing we can do is be holy. We can be holy. But you cannot expect this country to turn a corner and become once again if ever it was a holy nation or at least a called nation, can't expect that to happen if the priests themselves are unholy. And that's the church. We are priests in training. 
and we are being trained to be a holy people. Well, verse 28, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel saying, he who offers the sacrifice of his peace offerings to the Lord shall bring his offering to the Lord from the sacrifice of his peace offerings. His own hands are to bring offerings by fire to the Lord. He shall bring the fat with the breast that the breast may be presented now as a wave offering before the Lord. And then the priest shall offer up the fat and smoke on the altar, but the breast shall belong to Aaron and his sons. Bonner says it has to do with the heart, which is, it's, it's a lovely notion, but it's probably not true because they wouldn't have thought of that uh, back in, in those days in ancient times. But still, it's beautiful that the priest got, the, the breast meat was given to him. He says, you shall give the right thigh to the priest as a contribution from the sacrifices of your peace offerings. And some have said, oh yeah, the right thigh, that's the strength. The King James says the shoulder, you know, putting your strength into it, giving your strength to the Lord. And eh, okay, whatever. <laughs> Probably not the right interpretation, but if you want to make that application, feel free. The right thigh was given to the priest as a contribution. There's that, room, that word, uh, terumah, that that heave offering or that wave offering from the sacrifices of your peace offerings. The one among the sons of Aaron who offers the blood of the peace offerings and the fat, the right thigh shall be his as his portion. So more meat for the priest. For I have taken the breast of the wave offering and the thigh of the contribution of the sons of Israel from the sacrifices of their peace offerings and have given them to Aaron the priest and to his sons as their due forever from the sons of of Israel, and that's really cool. So they got some meat in the peace offering. It was the offerer who got meat, good meat. The, then the priest, they got the breast and the thigh, and then the Lord got the fat portions. Everybody got to fellowship. So it was kind of a, a group thing all together. Verse 35, this is that which is consecrated to Aaron and that which is consecrated to his sons from the offerings by fire to the Lord in that day when he presented him, them to serve as priests to the Lord. These the Lord had commanded to be given them from the sons of Israel in the day that he anointed them. It is their due forever throughout their generations. And that's why I've called this study the priestly portion. All of this meat, again, the, the breast meat, the thigh meat, that was the priest's takeaway from the peace offering. The offerer got the rest of the good meat. God got the fat and the lobe of the liver and the kidneys. Again, what we talked about Sunday God got that which was innermost, the innermost, that, that beautiful picture of giving completely of yourself. As Bonner said, the fat was typical of every deep-seated desire, every inward affection. God said, I'll take that. And that's what we were, what, what they were required or commanded to give to the Lord. That's what we give as priests in training. We give the innermost. We don't just make outward action. We give the heart. We would say the heart, that which matters most to us. We're giving this to you, Lord. Verse 37 finally says, this is the law of the burnt offering, the grain offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, the ordination offering, which is the additional, that grain offering of the priest, and the sacrifice of peace offerings which the Lord commanded Moses at Mount Sinai in the day that he commanded the sons of Israel to present their offerings to the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. That sums up the whole thing. Chapters six and seven, in fact, the entire first seven chapters are summed up there in verse 37 with the additional 
ordination offering. We're going to stop there for now. But let me sum up with this. All of these things are instructions to the priests, right, as we said at the outset, telling the priests how they are to function, telling the priests what their role is, what they are to do. And here's the application to you and to me. These are all about the priestly role in worship. Like I said this last week, the offerings are about worship. This is all how Israel was to come and worship the Lord. So now the priests in chapters 6 and 7 are trained up to keep the fire perpetually burning, to continue the daily sacrifices, morning and evening, and then everything anyone ever brought, to take their daily meals and their provisions, to take even these, and then to bring their own offerings. All of these things that the priests were being trained to do implicated one thing for a priest of Israel, and that is that the priestly life was to be a life of worship. And that's our portion. That's our priestly portion. That's why Paul said, Romans 12, 1, therefore I urge you, brethren, by mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. 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 That, this is our training. We're priests in training. Training for what? Primarily to worship. We are being trained up as a people to worship God ourselves, to lead others in worship, to have hearts devoted and developed to the worship of our great God. Whatever else our roles may be in the coming kingdom, that is a priority. That's the big one. That's what we're being trained to. A people who worship the Lord and lead others in worship of God. And again, we may be scattered all over the planet in Jesus' righteous and beautiful and holy administration. But as we are, our role will be roles of priests leading in worship. That is what the priest of Israel was called to do. And listen as I conclude to our great high priest Jesus as he describes it by his own example, Psalm 40, verse 6, sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened, or perhaps my, a body you have prepared for me. Burn offering and sin offering you have not required. But then I said, behold, I come in the scroll of the book, it's written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have proclaimed glad tidings of righteousness, where Jesus? In the great congregation. Behold, I will not restrain my lips. O Lord, you know, I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great congregation. What is he describing? Worship. Worship, I haven't concealed it in here. Man, it's old school and it's wrong to say that worship's a personal and private thing. No, it's not. It is public and congregational. Your worship is as much for me to experience and grow in my faith in the Lord as mine is for you to do the same thing. We worship together. We worship the Lord. And our worship is for the great congregation. Worship in the assembly of the saints. That is training for reigning. That will prepare you. I mean, don't think about all these other things. Well, I, I really need to get my administrative skills down if I'm going to be over 10 cities. Forget that. 
Worship God. Pursue him in a lifestyle of holy worship. Because among all our roles, that's the one. I'm, con I'm convinced there will be many roles. That's the one that matters. The most significant thing we are being trained to is holy worship. So Jesus is in Jerusalem on that final week. In fact, he had just entered in. Matthew 21, verse 15. The people are crying, Hosanna to the king. Hallelujah. Looking at Jesus. Hosanna to the son of David. And the chief priests and the scribes, Matthew 21, 15, saw the wonderful things he had done. And the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. See, they just picked it up from their parents. Parents were saying it as he rode down that triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And then in the temple courts, the kids are running around, Hosanna to the king, Hosanna to the son of David, Hosanna. Just running around praising. And the chief priests and scribes became indignant and said to him, do you hear what these are saying? I don't know why I just went British on you, but Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise for yourself. And the life of a priest in training is a life of praise. Father, help us. Help us, Lord, as corruptible people to be made holy in our worship, to be purified in our praise to be consecrated, Lord, as we sing songs of worship and speak words of thanksgiving and, and share the truth of the gospel in the assembly, in the congregation, and out in the world. May we yet, Lord, oh, my cry is may we yet impact the world around us because we have been made different, because we have been called holy, because we belong to you. And may we, Lord, learn what it truly means to live lives of worship and praise to the name of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.